If you are a person who does not think a convicted felon should be running the country, you might think of this statistic as a glass half empty kind of number. In exit polling conducted by NBC yesterday, 54% of New Hampshire's Republican primary voters said that if Donald Trump were to be convicted of a crime, they would still consider him fit to be president. Now, don't get me wrong. That is not a sign of a healthy democracy. The majority of New Hampshire's Republican primary voters would not care if Trump ends up a convicted felon. By the way, that would also mean that Donald Trump, a Florida resident, would not be able to vote for himself as a convicted felon, although 54 percent of New Hampshire Republican voters still would. Now, presidential elections in this country aren't won by a majority of Republicans or a majority of Democrats. They are won in the margins. They are won with the centrists, the swing voters and the independents. An analysis by The Washington Post showed that this election could come down to just a couple hundred thousand voters in just seven or eight states. Again, that is also not a sign of a healthy democracy in the big picture. But in the short term, it is why there might be a more optimistic way of reading that exit polling we just got out of New Hampshire last night, at least if you're someone who believes that convicted felons don't belong in the White House. Put another way, a sizable percent of New Hampshire Republican primary voters, 42 percent of them, said that they would not consider Trump fit for office if he's convicted of a crime. And last week in Iowa, 31 percent of caucus goers said the same. The odds are that this election is going to come down to just a few percentage points of votes in a few key states, even if that 42 percent in New Hampshire is high. I mean, even if the 31 percent in Iowa is high, even if that number or those numbers drop precipitously when the general election rolls around, which it probably will, even if those numbers are a fifth of where they stand today, that could still be enough to alter the outcome of this election. So the trials really matter here, whether or not Donald Trump ends up a convicted felon. The trials could be the thing that pushes swing voters to vote for Biden or to stay home rather than voting for Donald Trump. That is, of course, if Trump actually sees a courtroom before the election. I should qualify that statement by saying that Mr. Trump will be in some courtrooms before the election. He is expected to be back in a New York courtroom tomorrow in yet another civil case for his continued defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll. And we're still waiting for a ruling from the judge in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case against Trump and his company. But my question here is, will Donald Trump see a trial in a criminal case before the 2024 election? By far, the simplest, most straightforward criminal case is the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. That, That case is at least hypothetically set to go on trial May 20th. But every legal expert we have talked to recently believes the judge in that case, Judge Aileen Cannon, is likely to allow Donald Trump to delay it and delay it and delay it. Last week, Trump's legal team asked Judge Cannon to broaden the scope of discovery in this case dramatically, which is a move that could delay the trial even more. Down in Georgia, where Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is prosecuting Trump and his allies for election interference in a RICO conspiracy case, Willis has asked the court for an August 5th trial date. But now that trial date also faces potential delays as 
Trump co-defendants are trying to get D.A. Willis and her entire team of prosecutors taken off the case, alleging misconduct. So both of those trial dates are very much up in the air. The case that most legal experts believe is likely to go to trial before the election, special counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference case. As of today, that start date is also in question. That trial was originally scheduled to begin on March 4th. It is expected to take around three months, start to finish. But that case has been effectively frozen for six weeks, while Trump's claim of presidential immunity makes its way through the appeals process. And that appeals process is taking its sweet, sweet time. Yesterday, the same appeals court denied a different appeal by Mr. Trump, which was getting rid of his gag order. It took the appeals court 36 days to come to that decision, whether or not to rehear Trump's argument that he should be able to threaten witnesses, attorneys, and court personnel. Now, I'm not a judge, but it sort of feels like a straightforward decision here, but still 36 days. Now, that same appeals court heard oral arguments on the presidential immunity issue on January 9th, which was by my clock 15 days ago. Who knows how long it will take the court to decide on that matter. And even once the appeals court is done, the decision will almost definitely be appealed to the Supreme Court. And who knows how long they might take to make a decision. All the while, this case will be frozen. So what does that portend for that March 4th start date? Well, today we got a big clue. Today, the judge in that case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, scheduled an April 2nd trial date for a different defendant. Given that Trump's trial is expected to last around three months, that suggests that Chutkin sees it as unlikely that Trump's trial will start any time before mid-April at best. The wheels of justice turn slowly. And that reality is running smack into the political reality we are facing as a country. A potentially critical number of American voters are saying that a conviction would really, really matter to them as far as electing the next president. But the way things are going here between the courts and the defendant's endless delay tactics, will a conviction come too late? Joining me now is former Attorney General Eric Holder, Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I, um, I'm sure you saw the same numbers that I saw about Americans and, and a fairly strong belief on the part of a not insignificant number of voters that the convictions matter. I got to ask you, as a former top Justice Department official, the top, do you think the Department of Justice took too long in really starting its investigation of Donald Trump and his inner circle in earnest? Well, you know, I don't know exactly what was going on in the Justice Department. Obviously, I didn't have access to uh, the materials they were looking at or what processes they were going through. And hindsight is always, you know, 2020. But I can say that I think that once Jack Smith was brought on to the case, that the case has moved in, I think, a very, you know, a fast manner and they moved things along. Um, and so I think, you know, the focus that you raise is a very legitimate one. And I think that, you know, the, the process, the judicial process uh, needs to proceed in such a way that the American people have this vital piece of information um, before them, before they actually cast ballots in November. 
But I think the emphasis now has to be on on our, the judicial system and to try to make sure that they uh, process these cases as quickly as is possible. Uh, these cases can be designated um, in such a way that they are fast-tracked. I mean, it certainly happened in the Supreme Court with regard to the Nixon tapes case. Uh, and there's other cases that where that has occurred as well. And I would think that given you know, given the reality of where we stand now and the closeness of the election, um, I would hope that the courts will move these move these cases along, as they did not do uh, during uh, Mr. Trump's term in office, where he successfully played the courts um, and delayed, delayed and delayed. What do you make of this 36 days to decide on whether to rehear Trump's gag order appeal? I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer. I play one on television badly. It seemed like a long time for a fairly straightforward decision. And at the same time, we still don't have a ruling on this presidential immunity question 15 days later. Well, I was a trial judge. Uh, I've never been an appellate judge, so I don't know all the dynamics that go on between uh, the three individuals who heard these cases. Um, but it seems to me that it do- shouldn't take an awful long period of time um, to decide them. You know, we talk about this presidential immunity case, uh, and it's something that was raised, you know, some months ago. We've talked about it for a pretty long period of time. But if you step back and look at what the claim is, there's really not much there there. I mean, this is a case that I think can be decided, should be decided, um, you know, relatively quickly. And my hope would be that that will be the case so that the necessary appeals can be filed and the judicial system can um, get through the case and actually put this case before um, before a jury. But, you, you know, you say it should be decided quickly. I think for some of us on the outside who are neither trial lawyers or appellate lawyers, it doesn't seem like it's moved quickly. Like at this point, it's just, can it move? Does 15 days seem like a long time to you? Or, or is that relatively expeditious as far? I mean, given the time frame we're operating in, are we still in the realm of this potentially being seen as moving quickly if they hand down a decision 25 days later? Uh, you know, 25 days, 30 days, I'd say that was fairly expeditious. Uh, but he, the reality for me is that I never thought that the March trial date in uh, Washington was likely to actually occur. Uh, I, there were going to be delays, I thought, of, you know, of some of some nature. And so my belief has always been that this is a case likely to go to trial in May or in June. Um, and so from my own perspective, I think the, the case is still, you know, is still on track. Can I um, can I get your thoughts on on something that um, the conservative uh, just judge Michael Ludig tweeted? I think it was last week. It was never contemplated that the courts would have to defend themselves against such a belligerent defendant, defendant president determined to delegitimize them in the eyes of the American public. And they are powerless to defend themselves against him. And he knows it. Now, we were talking about sort of the pressure on the judges to come to a quick conclusion with some of these rulings. But on the other side of this, if they don't rule in Trump's favor, is just an enormous amount of pressure on them from the other side of the aisle, if you will. And I wonder what you make of that. Again, I know you're not uh, an appeals court, uh, former appeals court lawyer, but just as someone who understands the sort of mechanisms of justice and the role that these judges are now playing in, in some ways, holding aloft American democracy. What do you make of that um, assessment on the part of Judge Ludig? Yeah, I'm actually pretty confident that all the judges who are involved in these cases, um, when I talk about, I'm talking about the appellate judges now, will um, 
decide these cases as quickly as they can um, in, an, in, in a fair way. I don't think they're going to be intimidated by, uh, you know, by the, the Trump MAGA people. Uh, I don't think that is a, a concern. But he is right. You know, the judicial system is not really equipped uh, to push back in a way that the executive branch can if there are attacks brought against it by, you know, members of Congress or political parties. Um, that is just the way we have uh, designed our, our system. And so I think it's incumbent upon um, the courts. That's another reason why they need to expedite these matters so they don't subject themselves to unnecessarily uh, unnecessarily long period of, of criticism, because that has a long-term uh, negative impact on the perception of, of the courts. If, for instance, the delay goes on for two, three months, and you have just these withering um, unfounded attacks on our judicial system, that will have a collateral impact um, on the system itself. Let me ask you one more question, just as a sort of matter of course. Um, the 14th Amendment case is going to be heard at the Supreme Court, I believe, two weeks from tomorrow on February 8th. There have been a number of amicus briefs filed. The Biden Ju Department of Justice has not filed an amicus brief. Now, on its face, I sort of understand the political implications of the Biden administration weighing in on a, on a decision that could greatly benefit Joe Biden, depending on what the court rolls, if they take Donald Trump off the ballot. But as a matter of import for the federal government and sort of like a big constitutional question, it, it seems unusual at best that, that the Department of Justice hasn't weighed in on this from a sort of institutional point of view. Um, are you surprised by it? No, not really. I mean, I do think that, yeah, you would think that in a case of that magnitude where the Justice Department had a relevant interest that they would weigh in with an amicus brief of, of some sort. On the other hand, I don't think we can divorce this case from the political reality that the Biden administration generally, the Justice Department more specifically, um, faces. And I think the decision or the determination um, by the executive branch not to comment on the case, not to be involved in that part, that component of the case, uh, makes a great deal of sense. The Justice Department wants to be seen um, as only trying the case, applying the facts, uh, dealing with the law, uh, and making, you know, its case in, in that way, not to be a part of, um, you know, some effort to get him off the ballot. I, I think that, you know, that might be something in a different context the Justice Department would want to, um, you know, want to comment upon. But in this context, I think uh, silence is, is probably the best policy. Former Attorney General Eric Holder, it's invaluable to have your perspective in moments like these. I really appreciate your time tonight. Sure. All right. Thank you. There is much more to get to this evening, including Nikki Haley, who is still standing after her second place finish in New Hampshire last night. We're going to talk about what happened when she was governor of South Carolina and how that might foretell what happens to her in that state next. But first, the endorsement nearly everyone running for president wanted but only one candidate received today. That's next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Donald Trump is a scab. Donald Trump is a billionaire, and that's who he represents. And this choice is clear. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. That was the president of the United Auto Workers Union, Sean Fain, endorsing President Biden this afternoon. Biden has been edging towards that since September, when he became the first American president to join a picket line in support of auto workers striking for higher wages. Donald Trump, one day later, made his own attempt to appeal to blue-collar workers by holding a rally at a non-union shop. Workers of America are getting, to put it very nicely, screwed. You're getting screwed. Yesterday, Joe Biden came to Michigan to pose for photos at the picket line. But it's his policies that send Michigan auto workers to the unemployment line. It seems like the UAW maybe disagrees with Mr. Trump, which may be one of the reasons that today unfolded as it did. Joining me now, we're very lucky, is Karine Jean-Pierre, Biden White House Press Secretary. Um, it is great to have you on Thank set you. in person on a day Thank like today. You. Thank you. Good to see you, Alex. I'm not going to violate the Hatch Act to tell me if I cross <laughs> the line. We're very cognizant of that. I know you cognizant. are as well. Try to be. Try to be. Try to follow the law. Follow the law. <laughs> like some White Houses. Um <laughs> Let me ask you about the endorsement, not so much in the campaign context, but there's this narrative that Democrats aren't, that that Republicans are the populist party. It is a poisonous narrative if you compare it to the reality of things. And I I wonder if you think that Biden is really at a turning point in terms of disproving that narrative and recentering the Democratic Party in other people's minds on the notion of populism. So look, let me just first say that President Biden is known as the most pro-union president in modern times, right? And this is not a title that he has given himself. Yeah. This is a title that other union union members and unions have given him. Mm-hmm. And that is because of the work that he's done. That's because he's put that. When, it come, when you think about the middle class, he says unions has b- built the middle class, right? And he talks about how we need to build the middle class from the bottom up, middle out. And so he has, uh, he has said those words. He has walked the talk and he did it as a senator. He's clearly as vice president. And the last three years of this administration, he has been very clear that we should not leave anybody behind. It is important as we are creating jobs that there are good paying union jobs that many of those jobs, you do not need a college education. And you're seeing that you're seeing that in the economic data, especially as you see wages go up 14, 14 million jobs, more than 14 million jobs created under this president. And he does this all the time. When you think about the economy, he talks about we have to have equity at the center of it because we 
cannot leave. Many communities who have been left behind cannot be left behind anymore. And you see that. And we know that trickle-down economics does not work. So he speaks to it. He lives it. And you see that. You see that just listening uh, to the president of UAW. Well, he he was a first president. I mean, I I know that this may seem like a pro-forma exercise to people like Donald Trump or like he's posing for photos. It's the first time a president yeah. walked the picket line. That was walked not the picket line. That was not without political risk. Would walk the picket line, stood there with union members, with workers, making sure that that he was with them as they were fighting for their contracts for better pay, better benefits. That is something that this president believes in. It is incredibly important, and he says this all the time. It is important that union members fight and get the contract, and they make the money and get the benefits that they deserve. Yeah. I, I gotta, I gotta bring this up because I know the president noticed it. Um, he was uh, um, interrupted by pro-Palestinian protesters today at the UAW. This is the second time in the week this has happened. Um, the death toll in Gaza is twenty-five thousand four hundred. A, va- a huge number of that is children. Um, does President Biden feel like he should be held accountable for a war that the United States has supported through weaponry and rhetoric? I'll say this, and the president talked about this when he did um, his Oval Address and the lives, innocent lives, innocent Palestinian lives that are being lost. These children that you just uh, laid out is devastating. Mm -hmm. We're talking about children being killed. Uh, We're talking about children who are now orphaned. And one life is too many. One life is too many. And it is devastating to hear. And as it relates to the protests, obviously the president, and you heard the president say this, is that, um, you know, we, we, we respect the rights of Americans to protest peacefully. At the same time, at the same time, when you think about what happened on October 7th, when you think about the devastating attack that happened by Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, we got to remember that. We got to remember that they are a terrorist organization. That have said, leaders in that organization have said they want to see October 7th happen over and over again. So we're going to support Israel as they defend them- themselves. They have to do it. They have to do it in a more precise way. Uh, they have to make sure that they protect civilian lives. That's why the president is continuing having those dot conversation. And that's why we're making sure that we're doing everything that we can to see another humanitarian pause. We want to see another humanitarian pause so we can get American hostages home, so that we can get that much-needed humanitarian aid into Gaza, whether it's medical needs, whether it's other important needs that they need to survive and to live. And so we're doing that, and we're going to make sure that those conversations continue. We have Brett McGurk from a National Security Council who was in Doha today. He was in Cairo yesterday, being part of those uh, conversations that are happening with our, the region, um, region uh, folks, uh, regional leaders partners, and regional yeah. partners, and also obviously with Israel and Hamas. I'm not going to believe the point, but I think there are a lot of people would say if terrorism and rooting out terrorism and ending Hamas's reign of terror is the goal here, is not slaughtering 25,000 people actually a terrorist recruitment ad for for, ha- look, for Hamas and, look, and you I, know I, destroying all universities? Thing, and, yeah. I, I hear that. I hear that, and and it's a good question to ask. And we do not want to see any more any more innocent lives lost. That is, like I said, children, mothers, uh, innocent people being murdered. And that's why we're having those conversations. And 
as they are defending themselves, and we're going to support Israel defending themselves, they have it to do it within the international humanitarian law. It is important and critical to do that. We want to have another humanitarian pause. We want to have another one so we can bring bring hostages home to their family and get that humanitarian aid. One life is one life loss is too many. Well, and there have been considerably more than one yeah, or two considering, lives lost. Yes, um, there are so many things to talk to you yeah. about. I, I do. Yeah. There is some breaking news this evening tonight that. Uh, Minority Leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, appears to be backing away from the immigration and Ukraine funding deal that has been bandied about under sort of behind closed doors. We're not sure exactly what's in it. Um, he, The Punch Bowl is reporting that um, uh, McConnell is saying the politics on this deal have changed. It is all about Trump. Um, he referred to Trump as the nominee and noted that the former president wants to run his 2024 campaign centered on immigration and they don't want to do anything to undermine yeah. Trump's candidacy. Do you have uh, a thought on that? Like, what, what does the White House have a position on this potentially falling so, apart in service to Trump? So I understand this is the reporting. I want to be really mindful uh, and careful here. What I can say is what you've seen from this administration for the past couple of weeks, past couple of months, is negotiation happening with the Senate, both Republicans and Democrat. It, they were happening or are happening, as far as I know, in good faith. Uh, and we appreciated those conversations and we continue to hopefully get there, get to a bipartisan agreement. That's the only way we're going to be able to deal with the border security uh, issue that we're seeing. And I also want to remind folks who are watching that on the first day of this president's administration, he introduced a comprehensive immigration plan because he understood and knew, right, as many of us do, that immigration system had been broken for decades and we needed to actually deal with it in a legislative way. And so, Unfortunately, Congress Congress did not act. Three years have passed, but we've been in these conversations and negotiations with the, with both Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. And so I'm just going to leave it there for now. Yeah. I mean, perhaps surprising exactly no one, the Republicans might like to keep immigration alive as a campaign football for uh, their quarterback, Donald Trump. But I'm not going to ask you to violate the Hatch Act, Kareem Jean-Pierre. Let it be said that you came on the show and we did not violate the Catch Hatch Act, although someone on the Internet is probably going to say we did something. Uh, it's a pleasure to have <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, coming up later in the show, an upcoming book reveals kind of wild new details about Lindsey Graham's private testimony and Donald Trump's Georgia 2020 election conspiracy case. But first, Nikki Haley is going home. Is she going to stay there? More on that next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
we were very excited last night because we saw that we had gone up 25 points in a month and then Donald Trump got out there and just threw a temper tantrum. <laughs> he pitched a fit. He was, he was insulting. He was doing what he does, but I know that's what he does when he's insecure. I know that's what he does when he is threatened and he should feel threatened without a doubt. That was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley tonight, one day after losing to Donald Trump in the New Hampshire primary by 11 points. Governor Haley has now set her sights on the primary in her home state of South Carolina and what may be her last chance to prove she can beat Donald Trump. Today, the lead strategist for the super PAC that's supporting Nikki Haley tried to lower expectations, saying their goal in the state is to continue to grow our support. In other words, the super PAC does not have high hopes that Governor Haley will actually win the state where she served as governor for six years. With a month left to go until South Carolina, President Biden is already looking to pick off some of Governor Haley's supporters. In a statement last night, President Biden implored anti-Trump Republicans who supported Haley in New Hampshire to join us as Americans. Joining me now is Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker, and Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist or Politico. Um, Jonathan Martin, um, can you talk to me a little bit about what South Carolinians think of their governor? I mean, I know I'm sure this divides mm -hmm. somewhat sure. along partisan lines, but it sounds like Democrats don't exactly have a, a hugely favorable opinion of their former governor. Yeah, I mean, Governor Haley's challenge is going to be that the Democrats in the state who are engaged enough in politics to vote in a February primary are going to recall her governorship and probably not very fondly, given that they're partisans. Look, she's going to be relying on the same coalition that she put together in New Hampshire, which is basically a quarter of Republicans and then every independent you can get who mostly wants to vote for you as a vehicle to embarrass Donald Trump. It got her about 43 percent in New Hampshire. I think it's going to be hard for her to get that much in South Carolina with the same coalition, Alex, because there's just not as many of those independent voters in South Carolina. And one more thing, and this is crucial, Joe Biden is running in the primary in South Carolina, unlike New Hampshire, and he's going to turn out some of those independent voters to vote for him earlier in the month because the primary is on a different day for the Democrats. And guess what? When those folks vote in the Democratic primary, they cannot then vote three weeks later in the Republican primary. I raise that because Biden can effectively deprive Haley of votes that she'll need because you got to pick one of the two primaries to vote in if you're in South Carolina. That is such an interesting point that I think not a lot of people have focused on. Um, Susan, do you think, I, mean, I think the Biden-Haley relationship is kind of interesting, right? On one hand, it seems like it would benefit him to have at least a Trump scold, if not an outright critic, um, in the Republican primary, just to remind voters of, of, of who Donald Trump is, if no one else will. Um, and, and subsequently, I think the Trump's treatment of Haley could actually drive some Haley supporters to Biden in the end. But there is the question of whether it's not better for the Biden campaign to just have this thing be over with and have Trump as the general election nominee and go forward from there. 
Absolutely, Alex. I was just thinking that, uh, you know, when you were asking the question, on the one hand, you have Donald Trump uh, attacking her very viciously, as he has wanted to do, calling her bird brain in the lake. She's out there today in South Carolina doing something that seems like right out of the Biden campaign script, talking about Donald Trump's mental competency, uh, questioning his volatility, the chaos that comes alongside Donald Trump in some ways, right? This is exactly what any Democratic campaigner would be saying right now. So it seems to serve uh, the overall interests of anyone who wants to see anyone but Donald Trump to be elected president this fall. At the same time, I noticed that the Biden campaign and Biden himself were very quick yesterday to decree the GOP primary race over and done with and Donald Trump, the effective, the de facto nominee, the same thing that Donald Trump is saying, because I think it is uh, in Democrats' interest. Their campaign plan is basically to scare the bejesus out of the country that uh, Donald Trump could be coming back. And in that sense, Nikki Haley interrupts the narrative and interrupts the campaign plan for Democrats. Yeah, I mean, and in the interim, Nikki Haley theoretically has to withstand the full onslaught of Donald Trump, she being the only object that's standing in his way of the nomination, J-Mart. I mean, tonight on Truth Social, Trump is saying anyone that makes a contribution to, and he's calling her bird brain, from this moment forth, it sounds very uh, sort of king-like, doesn't it, will be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. We don't want them and will not accept them because we put America first and always will. I mean, it's almost comic, Jonathan, like the language here, the threats. Right. But it does it's, have resonance, doesn't it? I guess if you're a MAGA person, a I mean, Republican. This is, this is like, you know, American politics for like 200 plus years existed in a way like there were some things you said out loud and other things you said behind closed doors. Uh, it was called the proverbial smoke-filled room. Uh, yes. And like Trump... Trump says them out loud now, like, we're going to cut off uh, and not give access to anybody who cuts a check for Nikki Haley from this day forward. It's like one thing to have your emissary say that privately to a donor, uh, but like for the candidate himself and the former president to say it publicly, it just tells you everything about Trump's willingness to, you know, break so many American political rules. It's Trump, though. Is he going to forgive and forget? Uh, probably. He tends not to have a very long memory when it comes to folks. But obviously, he's furious now that Haley won't get out. And this is going to be, I think, one of the, the, the toughest, uh, nastiest South Carolina primaries that, that we've seen, because you can just tell from the tenor of Trump's tone that he's going to bring everything at her. And I think she, she is going to be happy to hit back. And look, if this thing really does go for the full month here, what Trump's going to do is he'll beat Nikki Haley, but he's going to give the Biden folks a lot for their yes. oppo file. He will say stuff about Nikki Haley. Yes. A lot of a lot of it with tinged with gender, yes. uh, you know, type attacks that the Biden folks will happily play over and over again for months to come. This is exactly. And this is what I was sort of vaguely mentioning to you, Susan. I mean, he's already tonight. He's or yesterday tonight. He's he's demeaning her in just profoundly transparent ways, talking about her dress, calling her bird brain, you know, calling her an imposter. I mean, that's only going to go. That's going to get ratcheted up. That's going to go on steroids between now and the Republican primary. And like, that's great for Biden because it just reveals Trump to be a, you know, a hardcore misogynist. Naples ultra. 
he doesn't care what that we think he's a hardcore misogynist is the problem, Alex, right? Uh, Donald Trump has one political playbook, and it is to, you know, whip his own supporters into a frenzy. He believes that misogyny plays for him politically. He's not uh, afraid of it. He's seeking it out. Uh, this is a man who, without shame, is, is attending his own civil trial uh, defamation case in New York City, where he's already been found uh, guilty of, you know, doing vile things. Uh, to a woman and then uh, impugning her uh, uh, by uh, speaking mistruths about it again and again and again. He's not afraid of the label of misogynist. He is all about his base. He is all about playing the kind of nasty bullying politics that he believes has, has gotten him a following. He wants his people to turn out in droves in November. And what others may see as an advantage for the Biden general election campaign, Donald Trump is playing his playbook, which is not at all about those voters. He's not interested, unfortunately, in what you and I think about him as a misogynist. Or what independent voters in key swing states may think, which might be a problem for the Trump campaign. We're going to talk about this more. Susan and Jonathan, please stick around. We have a lot more to talk about, uh, like the awkward encounter between Lindsey Graham and Fonnie Willis, which has been detailed in an upcoming new book and might just land the senator in some hot water with the MAGA camp. We'll have more on that right after the break. Until today, no one knew exactly what Senator Lindsey Graham told a Georgia special grand jury when he testified behind closed doors as part of the investigation into Trump's alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election. But according to an upcoming book by Michael Iskoff and Daniel Clydman, first previewed in Politico, Senator Lindsey Graham turned on a dime and threw Trump under the bus. Do you remember how Senator Graham went from publicly disavowing Donald Trump in the wake of January 6th to casting aspersions on the people trying to investigate the insurrection? Well, apparently, when the cameras aren't rolling, Mr. Graham is not exactly a true believer. He reportedly told D.A. Fonnie Willis and the special grand jury that if you told Trump that Martians came and stole the election, he'd probably believe you. According to one witness, after Mr. Graham was done testifying, he thanked D.A. Willis outside of the courtroom for the opportunity to testify and said, that was so cathartic. I feel so much better. He then proceeded to hug D.A. Willis. Her reaction, according to a witness, was whatever, dude. Today, an aide for Lindsey Graham denied this reporting, and he remains among the 29 senators who have endorsed Donald Trump to be the next Republican presidential nominee. Back with me are Susan Glasser and Jonathan Martin. Jonathan, um, I wonder if you have a, a sort of what, what you make of this, the pathos on display as it is reported by Michael Isakoff and uh, Daniel Clydman in their book. Two fantastic reporters. Uh, the Martian's line sounds... Uh, Quite like the Lindsey Graham that Susan and I know. Um, that that definitely sounds like his sort of his sort of sense of humor and sensibility, and um, doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, these old pros like Lindsey Graham get the deal with Trump. They they know what he is, and they've long ago made their bargain. And that's, I mean, you know, like news, news and weather at eleven. That this is par for the course with them. Uh, and the the fact that he said it to a grand jury obviously is a little more consequential. Yeah. But 
But Alex, this is the stuff that Republican lawmakers say every day in private on Capitol Hill about Trump. And they've been doing it now for almost nine years. And it goes on and on and on. And apparently we're going to do it here going into the full decade because Trump's poised, poised to be the nominee. Yeah, well, I mean, but there is the thing that he was saying it to a grand jury, Susan, and he found it cathartic. I mean, I guess in context with what unfolded last night on Trump's victory stage, I'm talking about Tim Scott sort of being self-abasing himself, as you as you characterized it in The New Yorker, and Vivek Ramaswamy, who was literally put on a timer by um, the, the <laughs> coach Trump. I mean, I, I don't understand what's in it for them, Susan. Like what, an appointment in an administration that they are then summarily dismissed from or put under investigation from for in, in eventually in like a Senate here? And what like what's the what's the gain, Susan Glasser? You know, I mean, Alex, this is the great psychological question mark of the last few years is like, I, I've always wondered like these big men, right? You see like Tim Scott, he's this big man. What is he so afraid of? What are they so afraid of? Is Donald Trump going to punch him in the nose? You know, if he doesn't suck up to him like that? I mean, there's plenty of jobs and work and ambition and power available to those who don't humiliate themselves by licking Donald Trump's boots in public. I mean, it's it's really, even though it's a familiar dynamic, you know, Jay Martin is absolutely right. Like that Lindsey Graham quote, that is exactly, we've, we've all heard him say versions of this, the cynical nature of the bargain between so many Republican senators and uh, Donald Trump. It still hasn't penetrated, I think, that alternate media universe that exists for Trump's voters and the MAGA universe. They somehow don't understand that these senators are laughing behind their backs at Donald Trump and they're laughing at them, the voters. And yet they are willing to do uh, endless amounts of public sucking up. It really I, I've watched, you know, this game play out for a while, but it is notable to me how quickly the uh, Republican elected officials are falling in line behind Donald Trump here in Washington on Capitol Hill. They believe clearly that the election is over and they must take Trump seriously in his very overt, explicit threats to them that they will be on the outside of a second Trump administration if they don't fall in line. Yeah, uh, the groveling is just uh, this it's humiliation. They're voters, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're voters, yeah. they're voters like Trump, and they're going to follow their voters even even, Even if, if, it's, if if their self-respect is on the line, apparently. Or, or in the case of Vivek, if you have to do like the Apollo scene where they grab the hook for you if you speak too long and they exactly. take you off stage, right? Susan Glasser and Jonathan Martin, thank you, my friends, for your time thank tonight. You. Coming up, much like Nikki Haley, I too will be traveling to South Carolina tomorrow. I will not be fighting for my political life, but I will be interviewing a very special guest. And I'll tell you who it is coming up next. It's time for a pop quiz on geography. Are you ready? Do you know where Lubbock County, Texas is? How about Odessa or Mitchell or Cochran or Dawson County? Here's a hint. You see the map there? They're all counties and cities in Texas that are either right on the border with New Mexico or just a stone's throw away. They are also localities that sit on major interstate highways like the I-20. And not coincidentally, they have all recently made it illegal to help a pregnant person travel for an abortion in another state. 
Texas already has one of the most restrictive abortion bans in this country. But now you cannot help transport a pregnant Texan to, say, New Mexico, where abortion is legal, if you travel through any of those counties and cities. One of the men behind these ordinances, Texas's anti-abortion activist Mark Lee Dixon, has called these laws just the next logical progression in the effort to end abortion in America. On Monday, a Tennessee State House Republican introduced legislation that would make it a felony, punishable by up to 15 years in prison, to transport a minor out of state for an abortion. Last week, a Republican Oklahoma state senator introduced a similar abortion travel ban with a two to five year prison sentence. The fact that one one political party could force Americans to remain pregnant and then restrict their movement sounds like the stuff of Margaret Atwood's nightmares. It is also one of the most animating issues of the 2024 election. Three months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, I spoke with California Governor Gavin Newsom, one of President Biden's top surrogates, about what Democrats need to do about these Republican bans. They need to be called out. They shouldn't be able to get away with it. They can't claim to be pro-life when they're just pro-birth. They can't claim uh, to embrace and celebrate freedom when they're denied freedom for women and girls and their reproductive rights. Tomorrow, I'm going to be in South Carolina, the state that made Joe Biden the prohibitive Democratic frontrunner in 2020 and the state that could mark the very end of the Republican primary this year. I'll be checking in with Governor Newsom about the Democrat strategy on abortion, Trump's grip on the Republican Party and a lot, lot more just ahead of the 2024 election. It's going to be a great conversation. Stay tuned tomorrow at 9 p.m. That is our show for this evening. 